And let's turn to Genesis chapter 27. As we continue to work our way through the Bible this evening. Genesis chapter 27. And let's pray before we get started. Father, we thank you so much for your great love for us. And the more we read this book, Father, the more sure we are of your plans and purposes for us and your love for us, Lord. And sometimes, Lord, even though we don't understand your plans, even though we're not privy to them, Lord, we know that your ways are good and we know that you have for us a future and a hope and that we can trust in you. And we ask tonight that you strengthen our faith, Lord. You promise that faith comes by hearing and hearing by your word. So as we study the scriptures, Lord, may you challenge us, convict us, encourage us, build up our faith, Lord, to be the people you desire us to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the spring of 2003, the American troops began their invasion into Iraq. The day after the invasion started, a presumptuous reporter asked the Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, to explain, quote, the apparent failure of the Army generals to follow the war plan. That's when Rumsfeld shot back, I don't believe you have the war plan. You see, this is our predicament. We're not always privy to God's plans. With their birth, God promised Rebecca a twist with her twins. Despite the custom of the day, the younger son Jacob would gain preeminence over the older son Esau. The little brother would receive the father's birthright. This unexpected twist pleased Rebecca because Jacob was a mama's boy. He was her favorite. She liked the fact that God chose Jacob over Esau so much so that she decided to help God out. You see, if Rebecca had been patient, if she had trusted God, he would have fulfilled his will in a harmonious way. But since Rebecca was not privy to God's war plans, she concocted her own plan and turned her family into a war zone. Genesis 27 is a fascinating study in the providence of God. Understand, nobody in this story does anything right. They all mess up. And everyone reaps the consequences of their actions and their bad choices. And yet, in the end, God accomplishes His purposes despite the mistakes of these people. I think our lives could also be a testimony of how God can also accomplish His purposes even in spite of our own mistakes. Well, the chapter begins. Now it came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see that he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered him, Here I am. Remember, Isaac lived long before the days of eyeglasses and laser surgery. And so the old guy was nearly blind. Then he said, Behold, now I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and make me savory food such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now notice, Isaac is afraid that he's about to die. 
Ironically, he will end up living another 43 years after this episode. According to chapter 25, verse 17, Ishmael had died at the age of 137. Isaac is now the same age. And he's worried that he might be suffering the fate of his brother very soon, that he might die too. And so he asks for his last meal. Apparently, Isaac liked the taste of venison. And for his last meal on earth, he wanted a venison steak. And so he sends his son out with his bow and arrow. He sends out Esau in verse 5. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau, his son. She had eavesdropped in on the conversation. Rebekah recalled God's promise when the children were born that the older would serve the younger. And she had always wondered how God would reverse the birthright. Now she sees her husband fading and she thinks that God is running out of time. And so she devises her own plan. Guys, God never runs out of time. Remember, we don't always have his war plan. And Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it. And so Rebekah spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, Indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me game and make savory food for me, that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me from there two choice kids of the goats, and I will make savory food from them for your father, such as he loves." Then you shall take it to your father that he may eat it and that he may bless you before his death. She's trying to get for him the birthright. Now, this is a well thought out plan. While we were down in Haiti last week, we all were treated to some goat meat. And trust me, goat meat doesn't taste anything like venison. But apparently, Rebecca had a recipe. She could solve this problem. She could make, somehow she could make goat taste like deer. You know, she had a slick, a pretty sophisticated plan here. But I want you to know, no matter how slick and clever your plan might be, you and I can never accomplish God's will through the works of our own flesh. Hebrews 6 verse 12 tells us that it's through faith and patience, not through our own ingenuity, that we inherit the promises of God. Verse 11 tells us, And Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Look, Esau my brother is a hairy man, and I am a smooth-skinned man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be a deceiver to him, and I shall bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. You golfers need to understand this is the first skins game. It's about to take place right here. Now notice... Jacob isn't really concerned about the morality of this plan. Notice he's not asking here what's right and what's wrong. Is it right to lie to my father? All he cares about is what's going to happen if he gets caught. But his mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go get them for me. Rebecca apparently had thrown caution to the wind. She doesn't care about right or wrong either, only what's best for her baby boy and getting what's best for him. And he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and his mother made savory food such as his father loved. 
Then Rebekah took the choice clothes of her elder son Esau, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the kids of the goats on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. Then she gave the savory food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. She tried to cover all the bases. She put the skin on his neck and on his hand so he would feel hairy like Esau. You remember the name Esau? You remember what it means? Hairy. When the kid was born, he looked like a little bear cub coming out of the womb. You know, he had so much hair all over him. And here she's covering the bases. And she's just as conni- and Jacob is just as conniving as her mother. You know, he could have stood up, couldn't he? He could have refused to do this, but instead he participated. Verse 18, so he went to his father and said, my father. Now the Bible doesn't say this, but I would imagine that Jacob also probably tried to change his voice. You remember Esau was kind of a macho guy. And I'm sure he talked with some kind of a deep, raspy kind of voice. And Jacob was a mama's boy and he probably had this little high pitch kind of a voice. And so he walks in and he says, my father, you know. Verse 23 tells us, though, that Jacob's impersonation didn't work. And he said, here I am. Where are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done just as you told me. Please arise, sit, and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he said, because the Lord your God brought it to me. And this is scary. Because notice now, Jacob brings God into his lie. Hey, here's a good example of taking the name of the Lord in vain. Verse 21. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. This is just what Jacob and Rebekah had anticipated. Apparently, Isaac had smelled a rat. Maybe he knew what his wife and son were capable of. He was a little suspicious, and so he said, Come closer so that I can feel you. I can see if you're Esau. And so Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice. Apparently his impersonation didn't work. But the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands, so he blessed him. Then he said, Are you really my son Esau? He said, I am. He said, bring it near to me and I will eat of my son's game so that my soul may bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. And I'm sure Jacob brought him the whole bottle of wine. The whole idea was to cloud his judgment and keep him from discerning the truth. You know, Isaac is really an interesting study. Apparently, there was a check in his spirit. Apparently, God warned him that there was a ruse afoot. He was suspicious. That's why he wanted to feel his son. His initial suspicion must have been God's warning to him. But his desire for physical pleasure, his desire for these venison steaks, drowned out any spiritual discernment that he might have had. Isaac is sad. He listens to his stomach more than he listens to God. Beware, physical pleasures tend to drown out spiritual discernment. 
Verse 26, Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him, and he smelled the smell of his clothing and blessed him and said, Surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Which doesn't really say much for Esau's personal hygiene. Therefore, may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be those who bless you. And you remember this was the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12. And now it's passed down to his son Isaac, not Ishmael. And it is now being passed down to Isaac's son Jacob, not Esau. But you know, it didn't have to happen as the result of a ruse. Rebecca didn't know God's plan, so she concocted her own, and the consequences were devastating. Her manipulation will cause her great pain and anguish. You see, you start to see the pain that she causes in verse 30. Now it happened, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, that Esau his brother came in from his hunting. And he also had made savory food and brought it to his father and said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that your soul may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, Who are you? And so he said, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled exceedingly and said, Who? Where is the one who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate all of it before you came, and I have blessed him. And indeed, he shall be blessed. Notice something interesting. You would think Isaac would become angry, that he would be mad at what had happened. Rather, he trembled exceedingly. Perhaps it dawned on him that God's will had been done despite him rather than because of him. Apparently he had been spiritually insensitive to what God had wanted to do all along. Isaac must have been resistant to what he knew was God's will. God's desire to break with custom and bless the younger above the older. And it stuns Isaac that suddenly he realizes God has gone over his head, you might say. Isaac realizes that God in his sovereignty has accomplished his will without him. Hey, here's the truth. God's will always gets done either with us or without us. Verse 34 tells us, When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now look, he has taken away my blessing. The word Jacob means supplanter or deceiver, double-crosser, you might say. And Esau is saying, my brother has lived up to his name. That double-crosser has double-crossed me. Jacob extorted from his brother, and now he has deceived his father. Verse 36. And Esau said, have you not received, have you not reserved a blessing for me? And then Isaac answered and said to Esau, Indeed, I have made him your master, and all his brethren I have given to him as servants. 
With grain and wine I have sustained him. What shall I do now for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me, me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. At first you feel sorry for Esau. You feel a pity for him. But Hebrews 12, verses 14 through 17, puts Esau's plight in context. I want you to read with me from Hebrews. It says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, looking diligently, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Yes, Esau cried. Yes, he showed remorse, but he showed no repentance. Esau regretted the outcome, but he was never willing to change and conform his life to the will of God. It's one thing to feel sorry you got caught. It's another thing to accept God's will and conform to it. And it's interesting that Isaac here refused to reverse what he had done. I think that's interesting. Even though they might have thought this would be the just thing to do, to reverse this deception that's occurred, he refused to do so. He could have revoked what had happened, but instead he lets it stand. And Hebrews chapter 11 verse 20 tells us why. He says, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. Apparently, Isaac had sensed that God's providence had prevailed. That even despite him, God had worked out his will. And Isaac had faith enough to accept this situation in this turn of events as the will of God. But there is a secondary blessing for Esau. Verse 39. Then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother. And it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. And this is exactly what happened. History tells us after their exodus from Egypt, the, the descendants of Jacob, the 12 sons of Jacob, the Hebrews, will re-enter the land. And Esau's descendants, the Edomites, will become subservient to the tribe of Judah. Their submission will last 600 years until the reign of King Jehoram in 850 B.C. In fact, 2 Chronicles chapters 21, verse 8 says, In his days, King Jehoram, Edom revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over themselves. It says, just as the prophecy here says, when you become restless, that you shall break his yoke from your neck. It took about, oh, a thousand years for that to happen. And so here we have a thousand-year-old prophecy that was fulfilled, and now we can go back and look at its fulfillment. Hebrews tells us that Esau never found repentance Because a root of bitterness blocked his progress. Guys, bitterness is a blocker. Bitterness will block you from the blessings of God. This past week while I was in Haiti, my wife had a little Haiti of her own. 
she had a terrible ordeal that she had to endure. Our toilet overflowed. It soaked the basement with water. We had to pull up the carpet and get rid of it. A root had grown into our septic line and had blocked the flow of sewage. It was a miserable situation, to say the least, and my poor wife had to deal with it, you know, by herself with the help of a couple of friends here from Calvary Chapel. I appreciate you so very much. While I was down in Haiti, it was the one time when I really wasn't anxious to come home from Haiti. (laughs) But you see, this is what happens in our lives. God wants a continual flow of cleansing and blessing to sort of flush through us. But bitterness blocks that spiritual flow. And sewage backs up. Anger and hatred and pride and jealousy and frustration spill over behind the blockage. And our lives become flooded with spiritual sewage. This is what happened to Esau. And this is why we need to uproot any root of bitterness that might take hold in our lives. We need to choose to forgive rather than grow bitter. And Esau's bitterness is obvious in verse 41. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Isaac was able to accept this as the will of God. He was able to forgive and move on. But not Esau. He wanted to hold on to the grudge. He nursed this grudge until it became a desire to murder his brother. And the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. And I'm sure at that moment it hit her. What kind of a monster have I created as a mother? I'm sure she realized, what kind of damage have I done To my own family. Remember, her plan, not God's plan, her plan had put her own sons at odds against each other. And now her older son wants to kill her younger son. Guys, this is why we need to trust God. This is why we need to be patient. Rather than take matters into our own hands and try to work things out through the flesh, we need to walk by faith and rely upon God to work His will in His way in His time. So she, went, she sent and called Jacob her younger son and said to him, Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to my brother Laban in Haran, and stay with him a few days. These few days are going to turn into 20 years. 20 years. Until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him, then I will send and bring you from there. It never happened. She never again saw her son, Jacob, the son that she loved. Why should I be bereaved also of you both in one day? It's sad, but there's a good chance that Rebecca never again saw Jacob. Rather than trust God, she took matters into her own hands. And it not only turned her older son against her, but it cost her the fellowship of the son that she loved the most. Verse 46, And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. 
If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, like these who are the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? You know, as a parent, it does rip your heart out. To see your child marry to unbelievers, to the daughters of Heth, to those who don't follow the Lord. And this is another way of sending Jacob away. Rebecca doesn't want her son to marry an unbeliever, and so she sends Jacob northeast to Haran, to her own homeland. Chapter 28. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him, and charged him, and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there, of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you, and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. Jacob will later pass on this Abrahamic covenant to his twelve sons, and they will become the fathers of the twelve tribes of Israel. Israel is God's chosen people. Verse 5 says, So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take himself a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan, And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram. Also Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. So Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nabayoth, to be his wife in addition to the wives that he had. Now back in chapter 26, verse 34, We're told that Esau had already taken two Canaanite wives. And here he doesn't want Jacob to one-up him. So he tries to marry a member of the extended family. Hey, this is bitterness in action. Rather than concern himself with what's right, all he cares about is keeping up with Jacob, with the object of his jealousy. His hatred for his brother is what is going to rule his life for many years to come. That always happens to a bitter person. Verse 10. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And so he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head. And he lay down in that place to sleep. Jacob was exhausted from this whole ordeal from the threat of his life, from his conflict with Esau, from all this deception and all that he had participated in. And he was exhausted. He was tired. And he needed some sleep. And so he goes to this place and he lays down and he doesn't even mind using a stone as a pillow. Verse 12. Then he dreamed. And behold, a ladder was set up on the earth and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. It reminds me of the boy who told his longtime girlfriend, I had a dream last night that I actually went ahead and proposed to you. What do you think it means? 
And that's when the frustrated girlfriend responded, It means you're smarter asleep than you are awake. (laughs) And the same can be said here for Jacob. He's a conniver and a schemer. And yet in a dream he sees a glorious vision. Jacob's ladder. It's actually God's ladder. It's a ladder connecting heaven with earth. It's interesting. We are going to have to wait now 2,000 years to learn the significance of this ladder. For it won't be until Jesus comes on the scene that He explains to us what this vision meant. In John chapter 1, verse 51, Jesus speaks to Nathanael. And He says of Himself, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. You see, Nathaniel, he had been sitting under a tree and he had been reading about Jacob's ladder and he had been contemplating, what in the world does this mean? And Jesus says, that which you were reading, you've actually seen and now you understand that from this day forward, you're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus is the ladder. That reaches from heaven to earth. Jesus is the bridge. He's the connection between us and God. And the only way that you and I can reach God is to come through Jesus Christ. What Jacob saw here was actually a prophecy of our Lord Jesus. Verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Remember the three parts of the Abrahamic covenant. Anybody remember them? Sod, seed, and salvation. God promised Abraham a piece of land. Here he repeats the promise to Jacob. God promised him a great nation. Here the promise is repeated. And God promises that through that nation, the nation of Israel, all the world will be blessed. The same promise is here repeated to Jacob. It was was given to Abraham, repeated to Isaac, and now repeated to Jacob. This is why we call God the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land and I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. How many times does that happen to us? God's there and we're not aware of His presence. That's our problem so often. God hasn't left us. He hasn't forsaken us. He's right there with us. We're just not aware of His presence. I'm constantly praying, Lord, make me aware of Your presence in my life. Help me sense You, Lord. Help me be able to reach out and touch the hem of Your garment and derive virtue from You. He says, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. There is none other, this is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. This was actually a turning point in Jacob's life. Out from under his mom's apron, he encounters and experiences God for himself. Now her God has become his God. And in verse 18 we're told, 
Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of that city had been Luz previously. It's interesting. The word Luz means separation. The word Bethel means house of God. Jacob is separated from Isaac's house, but at Bethel, he becomes a part of God's household. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Now that's not much of a statement of faith. In fact, that's a pretty weak faith. That's a very conditional faith if you ask me. If God will be with me and do this and that, then God will be my God. It's a far cry from the three Hebrew children. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Babylon. You remember the story? How that they were told to bow to the idol or they would be thrown into the fiery furnace. And you remember how they responded to King Nebuchadnezzar? They said, King, God is able to deliver us from this fiery furnace. But even if He doesn't, we won't bow to your false God. Now that's real faith. That's unconditional faith. And Jacob here prays, And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Now, and I think this is really very interesting. Notice Jacob is at the beginning of his journey of faith. He's at the very beginning of a life of faith. It's a weak faith. It's a conditional faith. It's a brand new faith. It's a baby faith. But it begins with the promise of giving 10% of his income to God. We think that when we just start tithing, we've reached the pinnacle of faith. I'm tithing to God, man. I've, I've arrived now, you know. I'm somebody spiritual. Hey, tithing is just the first step. It's just the beginning of faith. And, and I think you can't really say that your journey of faith has begun until you agree to trust God with a tithe. Guys, that's just the starting point. If you, if you haven't started tithing, you're fooling yourself. You're not even on the, on the track. That's just the beginning to be able to say, Oh God, I, you know, I'm going to trust you with my money. You're going to trust God with your eternal destiny. You're going to trust God with your family. You're going to trust God with your kids. You're going to trust God with your marriage. You're going to trust God with all these things that are important. And you can't trust God with your filthy lucre. Here he begins his journey of faith with the promise to tie the tenth of all of his income. In chapter 28, Jacob dreams. But in chapter 29, he meets the girl of his dreams. So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked and saw a well in the field. And behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they watered the flocks. A large stone was on the well's mouth. And now all the flocks would be gathered there. And they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. The stone was heavy. And it took a combined effort of all of the shepherds in order to move it off the well. And it guarded the watering hole from unauthorized users. And Jacob said to them, 
My brethren, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. And then he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, and they must have said it something like this, Yeah, we know him. Did they ever know him? Hey, Laban was a bigger conniver, a bigger deceiver than Jacob. And Jake is, Jake is about to meet his match in this man named Laban. It's interesting, in Bethel, Jacob saw God's glory. In Haran, he experiences man's cruelty. Verse 6. So he said to them, is he well? And they said, yeah, he's well. And look, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. And then he said, look, it is still high day. It is not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and feed. Is it? I misread that. It says, it is not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and feed them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and they have rolled the stone from the whale's mouth. Then we water the sheep. Now while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the whale's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Remember, it took a combined effort of all of the shepherds to move that stone. But Jacob sees a girl that he really likes. Wow. Look at that shepherdess. Man, she's a fox in sheep's clothing. What a good looking girl. And there's nothing like a little demonstration of machoism. A little macho demonstration to impress a girl. And so he goes over, he flexes up, and he moves the stone all by himself. Honey, I'll take care of that for you. And verse 11, we find that it worked. It impressed her. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And his tears are tears of joy. He has found the woman of his dreams. This is love at first sight. Jacob kisses Rachel. It's been said, a boy becomes a man when he decides it's more fun to steal a kiss than second base. And here is proof that Jacob is growing up. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative and that he was Rebekah's son. And so she ran and told her father. Then it came to pass when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. So he told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. The phrase, Leah's eyes were delicate, can mean one of two things. Either she had these weak, ugly looking eyes, or she was so ugly that she made your eyes hurt. It could mean one of those two things. 
Rachel had these deep pools above her cheeks, these mesmerizing eyes. Leah had these little slits, looked like snake eyes, you know, right above her, her cheeks. She was an ugly girl. Either way you interpret it, Leah was not a very attractive young lady. And compared with her younger sister, man, Rachel was a knockout. Verse 18. Now Jacob loved Rachel. And so he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. Isn't that beautiful? Seven years. But it was only a few days because of how madly in love he was with Rachel. I hope you notice that. That love is always willing to wait. I hope you high school kids note that. That love is always willing to wait. Lust pushes the issue. Lust is the one who wants to force you outside of God's will. Love is the one who says we can't wait. Love always is willing to wait. Love bides its time. Love doesn't resent or begrudge having to wait. It's been said, lust can never wait to get, while love will always wait to give. Verse 21 says, Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go into her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. We've moved ahead in the story now seven years. It's time for the wedding. It's time for Jacob to receive his wages and to take Rachel to be his wife. And they've gathered the men together. They're planning the wedding feast. Now understand, wedding feasts in those days lasted for an entire week. And so for seven days, Jacob and his buddies are going to party hardy. And by the time the wedding night rolls around, he's sauced. He's really tanked. He's had too much to drink. His senses are, are kind of misty, you might say. Now it came to pass in the evening that Laban took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob. Now you see, the reason for this was the custom in those days that the older daughter had to marry before the younger daughter. Laban is a conniver. He's a sneak himself. And so what does he do? There, there, are, no, there are no lights in the honeymoon cottage. There are no electric lights. And besides, the brides in those days wore these long, you know, flowing veils. And, and so Laban, he, he puts Leah in the place of Rachel. And, and he sort of passes Leah off as Rachel. And Jacob went into her. And Laban gave his maid Zilpah, his daughter, to his daughter Leah as a maid. Now fast forward about eight hours. And so it came to pass in the morning that behold, it was Leah. Again, Jacob kisses a girl and starts to cry. But this time for a very different reason. He has kissed the ugly girl. He has kissed the wrong woman. He went to bed expecting to hug Rachel. Instead, his arms are around Leah when he wakes up and looks and sees, Oh no! It's Leah! 
And as you know, every single married person here tonight has had that very same experience. For each of us, there has come a point, there is always some point after the wedding night when we wake up to the realization that the person we've married is really not the person we thought they were. It's true. Every married person is in a sense married to two people. You're married to a Leah and you're married to a Rachel. In many ways, your wife is like a beautiful Rachel, but in other ways, she is like an ugly Leah. I would imagine that in many ways, your husband is like a beautiful Ray, but in other ways, he's like an ugly Lee. You see, Rachel is that part of your spouse that you love, that you are attracted to, that you absolutely adore. You could be forced to wait on this Rachel for seven long years and your love for her would seem but just a few days. But not only are you married to Rachel, you're also married to Leah. And this is the side of your spouse that was a surprise. (laughs) When you married, you knew you were getting this Rachel, but you didn't know about this Leah. He is the ornery and ugly and selfish side of your husband. She is the side of your wife that was covered up and veiled and hidden from view when the vows were taken. And I don't care how long you've been married, whether it's seven months or seven years or 17 years, you will never learn all there is to know about your spouse. There will be definite surprises after the wedding day. Just the other day, my wife and I have been married for 24 years. And and for 24 years, I thought her favorite restaurant was Red Lobster. (laughs) And the other day, we're going out to to dinner. And I tell Kathy, I said, well, honey, I said, I want to treat you. I said, "Why, why don't we go to Red Lobster? I know how much you love Red Lobster. It's kind of our place. It's the place we like to go to. I don't like Red Lobster. For 24 years, I've thought Red Lobster was your favorite. No, I don't like Red Lobster. I hate Red Lobster. I only go there because you like to go there. I mean, what do I know? I don't know this woman. There are some definite surprises after the wedding day. Trust me. You know, there there are parts of your spouse you absolutely love. They're, They're beautiful. This is my Rachel. But then there are other parts where suddenly, oh man, where was this guy when I married him? And I want you to understand, the blemishes have been there all along. They were there from the very beginning, but you were drunk on love. (laughs) And you didn't see them. Your spouse is not what you thought, and you're now shocked to realize it. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, It must not be done so in our country, notice this, to give the younger before the firstborn. And how those words must have stung old Jacob. Because what had he done? 
He had violated the rights and customs of the firstborn himself. He had tricked. He had manipulated the thing. And now the schemer has been schemed upon. Jacob the deceiver is now the one who gets deceived. He had spit in the eye of custom. And now custom is spitting back in his eye. As the old saying goes, guys, what goes around comes around. <laughs> Laban continues in verse 27. Fulfill her week and we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve with me still another seven years. Jacob gets Rachel now, but in return he has to serve Laban an additional seven years. Verse 28. Then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. So he gave him his daughter Rachel, his wife also. And Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. Then Jacob also went into Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban still another seven years. Jacob ends up agreeing to serve for Rachel a total of 14 years. This story reminds me of the Italian man who was about to be married when this heavy fog rolled in. It was an outdoor wedding. And he couldn't really see what he was doing. And he ended up marrying two women. And when later he was asked to explain how he could have possibly made such a mistake, he, he said to the guy, he said, It was a big mist. <laughs> it was a big mist. I'm, I'm telling you, it was a big mist. <laughs> it was a big mist. <laughs> I think that's great. That's so funny. I've been having to hold back this whole Bible study just to get to that joke right there. It was a big mist. <laughs> Nowhere in the scriptures does God approve of bigamy. The divine blueprint for marriage is one man and one woman committed to a lifelong relationship. And so you ask, what should Jacob have done on the day after he woke up and realized he was married to Leah? Well, I believe that Jacob should have left with his wife and started a new life with Leah. That he should have never married Rachel. Nowhere does God condone bigamy. And Jesus agrees. He says, no man can serve two masters. <laughs> he should have left with Leah and learned to be content. But you say, come on, Sandy. The girl was ugly as mud. And Jacob didn't even love her. How can you say he should have left with Leah? Hey, I honestly believe that even if Jacob didn't love her, if the two of them had conducted their marriage God's way, Jacob would have eventually loved Leah just as much as he had loved Rachel. Love grows where marriage is done God's way. It sounds funny saying it, but the feeling of love is far 
overrated when it comes to success in marriage. Yes, it's important in courtship, but in marriage, it's way overblown. The feeling of love. I mean, sometimes our feelings sort of ebb and wane. Sometimes we don't feel like much of anything. I've seen marriages where the feeling of love was completely depleted, but the husband and wife decided to stick it out and do things God's way, and love began to grow again. On the other hand, I've seen marriages abounding in love, but the couple ignored God's guidelines, and love dwindled as the marriage broke apart. Give me two people who can't stand each other and encourage them to interact God's way and to love each other the way God has designed for them to love each other and love will grow out of nowhere. I have seen it happen. With the right commitment, no problem is unsolvable. But without the right commitment, every problem becomes a threat. As we're told in verse 30, In the beginning, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. But there's strong evidence that slowly over time, Jacob's initial feelings changed. Verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, He opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, The Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now therefore my husband will love me. You know, at first your heart just breaks for Leah, doesn't it? She's always longing for her husband's love, always trying to measure up, give him a reason to love her. And with this first child, she hopes that he'll love her now. But notice what happens next, verse 33. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, He has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Reuben means see. Simeon means hear. The Lord saw her barrenness. He heard she was unloved. And so He decided to make her fruitful and give her another child. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And the word Levi means attached. Obviously, Leah here is working at her marriage. She's laboring to get her marriage better. All that's mentioned here are her three labors, but I'm sure she labored in many other ways to improve her situation and to better her marriage. Finally, in verse 35, it pays off. Notice, And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah, which means praise. Then she stopped bearing. Judah means praise. The implication is is that all of her labor paid off. With the birth of Judah, she praises God. At last she experiences the enjoyment of marital love and no longer has a need to bear another child. Apparently her husband accepted her. And she gained a place in his heart. When you jump ahead to the end of Jacob's life, you find him making an interesting choice. In Genesis chapter 49, we'll come to it in a few weeks, He's on his deathbed. And there Jacob with his last breath makes a final request. He says, bury me in the cave where they buried Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, and where I buried Leah. You would think that Jacob would want his final resting place to be next to Rachel, who will later be buried in Bethlehem. But no, he asked to be buried in Mamre, right alongside Leah on the first night of their marriage. 
he resented lying next to Leah. But at the end of their road together, it was his utmost desire to lie next to Leah. Jacob wanted to make sure that until the resurrection, his bones would lay next to Leah's bones. Apparently his heart had turned. It's ironic, but Rachel dies before Leah, and thus Leah was the wife who ended up with Jacob all to herself. It was Jacob and Leah who enjoyed growing old together. And it's also interesting that it was through Leah, not Rachel, that Judah was born. And remember, the Messiah came through the tribe of Judah, and thus Jesus was of the lineage of Leah, not Rachel. Perhaps that was another way of God putting His stamp of approval on the union between Jacob and Leah. The royal line came through their union. In the beginning, we're told, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, but in the end, the roles were reversed. That's why I say Jacob should have made a life with Leah. Instead, he lived in this bigger mist. In this confusion, in this terrible situation, instead he ends up living between two warring women. And that's what we're going to see happen next week. The feud begins. The family feud begins in chapter 30. And we're going to discover that Jacob's house was not a happy home. <laughs>